Our gospel text this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5, or 6, verses 5 through 15. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners so that people will see them. I assure you, that's the only reward they'll get. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is present in that secret place. Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't put out a flood of empty words as the Gentiles do. They think that by saying many words, they will be heard. Don't be like them because your Father knows what you need before you ask. Rather, pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven... Uphold the holiness of your name. Bring your kingdom so that your will is done on earth as it is done in heaven. Give us the bread we need for today. Forgive us the ways in which we have wronged you, just as we also forgive those who have wronged us. And don't lead us into temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. If you forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Since I started the precedent of sharing somewhat embarrassing high school stories last week, I'm going to share a somewhat embarrassing high school story this week. Early this morning, I was hoping I had a picture of this on my computer, but I don't. So good for me, sad for you. Um, but, but for those of you who don't know, when I was in, well, actually from the time I was seven years old, um, I played hockey, um, up through high school, as a matter of fact, um, in Colorado Springs who knew that that would be something I picked up, but I had relatives in Minnesota. And so anyway, played hockey. So from when I was about seven years old up until I was about seven years, so 10 years time. And, um, I had an older brother who also played hockey, um, which also might be the reason why I kept with it so long. Um, for those of you with older siblings who you sort of idolized, that's how it happens. You just sort of like to do what they do. Um, so we, we played hockey. Um, when I was in junior high, my brother started high school, and he was on the, the varsity hockey team. I, I say varsity hockey team. There wasn't a junior varsity hockey team. I just want you not to be overly impressed when I tell you where I was in high school as well. But, but he was on the varsity hockey team. And so I, I had the opportunity as a, as a junior hire to watch my brother and, and his teams play high school hockey. Um, it was fun for me. I enjoyed it. And, and like many young people do, I saw kind of the, the players out on the ice. And, I, and I, I kind of began to think, wow, they're really good. I'd like to kind of be that good. Um, I saw my brother. My brother was, was, I mean, was. This isn't just like little brother talking. This is true. He was much better at hockey than I am, so I kind of idolized and wanted to be like him when he played hockey. But, but there was another guy on his team. His name was Enzo Venatelli. Isn't that a great name? Enzo Venatelli. His dad owned a pizza parlor in Colorado Springs, Enzo's Pizza. Best. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but he played on my brother's hockey team. He was older than my brother um, by, I think, a couple of years. Um, and, and the thing that, that really caught me about Enzo is the way that he skated and the way that he stopped when he skated. Now, I don't know how many of you are hockey fans um, or have watched hockey, but hockey players are pretty amazing in being able to go very, very fast on ice and stop very, very quick, right? The spray, of the, uh, they call it a power stop or a hockey stop, right? You might be familiar with this. If not, 
Seattle has a pro hockey team now. Go Kraken. So uh, check it out. But anyway, Enzo had a very, very interesting way of stopping. It, he only used one foot when he stopped. So he would, he would stop, and it's going to be hard to, to do this without like, having a video of it, but, but he would only use one foot, like his right foot. Um, so he would stop on the, on the out, inside edge of his right foot, and he would drag his other foot in this way that I don't know why looked really cool to me. Like I really, I just thought it looked really neat. And so I began to emulate Enzo. Now I, I had been ho- playing hockey at that time, probably eight, nine years. So I, I knew what I was supposed to do, but I started emulating and following bad form. Now, any of you who have played sports know that this is not a good idea, right? Just because someone has a form that looks neat does not mean you should follow it. I've recently learned that my form in golf is very bad. I took a lesson. Jen got me a lesson for my birthday and realized that the reason I'm hooking is because I have bad form. And so I have to try to unlearn that. And in hockey, I didn't realize that this was bad form. And so I continued to play hockey. I got up into high school myself, played hockey on the varsity. No junior varsity, remember? Hockey team. But I continued to stop wrong. And just to tell you why this is important is if you're using two skates and two blades, you stop much, much quicker than on one. Right? It's like saying, right, go down the road and only use three of your car's brake pads rather than all four. It will significantly decrease your stopping power if you do that. And that's what I did. And, and, and to this day, I have to be honest, the last time I skated and I tried to hockey stop like correctly, I couldn't do it. I defaulted back to that form that I had unintentionally learned in practice for most of my adult hockey playing career. Even when I ski, I find myself not using the inside of my edge. It's strange, it's, it's hard, it, it's not good because I learned to do the thing the wrong way. So how we learn to do things is important, is it not? How we learn to write, how we learn to speak, how we learn to drive, how we learn to do anything that we do over and over and over again, repetition that sort of sinks down into like the, the unconscious part of us that does it automatically. It's important we learn to do rightly. You may have heard the term practice makes perfect. Practice makes permanent, not perfect. Practicing well makes perfect. Practicing wrong makes a bad habit, a bad way of doing something, permanent. So what's this have to do with prayer? I I think you can imagine what it has to do with prayer. You you, you see, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, as, as we heard last week, and I read part of the, the, sermon, or the text that we talked about last week, uh, Jesus talks a lot about, about kind of practices that people do, and more importantly, why people do them. He, he talks about giving alms, right? Giving alms in a right way is a good thing. Giving alms with wrong motivations is a bad thing, right? When you give alms, don't give it to be seen by others, but rather give it to be seen or to, in response and obedience to God. When you, when you do other things, do it because, not because you want to be seen, but because you, you are doing and acting in obedience to God, right? That, that's how it works. And, and so Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount also talks about prayer in this way. Right? He, he begins by saying, don't pray like the hypocrites. He says, don't pray like the Gentiles. And, and Jesus does what, what a good teacher does. He lists kind of the, the, I won't say bad, but the wrong ways about going about prayer. Right? So Jesus starts off by, by citing negative examples. Right? Don't be like the hypocrites when you pray. 
Why not? What do the hypocrites do, he says? The hypocrites stand on the street corners. They pray in ways that garner intention because they want people to think how pious, how holy, and how righteous they are. So Jesus says, don't do it this because this is the wrong way, but rather do it the right way. And then he also says, around you, you see all sorts of people praying, and, and, and some of them are Gentiles. Some of them aren't praying to Yahweh. They're, they're praying to their gods, and, and they do it in, in very strange and interesting ways. And, and, and he says, don't be like them, because they think if they talk a lot and repeat a lot, then they have to get their God's attention, and that God will somehow hear them by the multiplicity of their words. He says, don't do that. That's the wrong way of doing it. And then Jesus begins to talk about ways in which the people are to pray. What what Jesus is doing is he's he's establishing sort of some of the wrong ways that perhaps the people have learned to pray. Right? The wrong motives, the wrong actions, the wrong sort of ways of going about doing it. Right? So the hypocrites, they do it in order to be seen. And and the Gentiles serve gods who who aren't really paying attention. And so they think they have to do uh, amazing things or pray the right formulas in order to get the proper response. Right? He says, you see all these things and and, and they're praying in these ways and and they're wrong. They're, They're not the way in which Yahweh God works. And so it begs the question of, how do we? Remember from last week that Jesus presupposes, right? He assumes that the people of God are praying, right? It's not that he says, you know, make sure you pray. Notice how Jesus doesn't really ever say that in the scriptures. There's lots of things that Jesus doesn't ever really say, you you ought to do this. He just assumes that those who are righteous are acting in these ways. So he says, when you pray, because he's assuming the people are praying, But he also knows that there are negative examples out there. Negative examples of how people pray, praying wrongly or praying with the wrong sort of ideas about God in their hearts and in their minds, right? If you feel you have to pray really, really, really loudly in order to get God's attention, that's telling you something about what you believe about God, right? And Jesus is saying, that's not how this God works, right? And if you think you have to have the right formulas and say the right things, well, that's that's not prayer, that's magic, right? Making sure you have all the right words and the right incantations so that you affect the right result, that's, that's not prayer, that's magic. He says, you don't need to be like that. That presupposes something about God, that God cares about the formulas you use when you pray. And so he says, this then is how you should pray. Now, now why is this important? What we're, what we're hearing in the Sermon on the Mount is not just Jesus saying, this is the proper way to pray. What we must assume, and I think can assume, is that when Jesus says this, he is saying, not only this is the way you should pray, he is saying, this is the way I pray. We should believe that when Jesus says, this is how you should do something, that's how he does it. Right? So what we're learning is not just a good formula for prayer. What we're learning is to pray in the way Jesus prays. Luke, when he records this particular conversation between Jesus and his disciples, the disciples ask him, Lord, show us how to pray. Teach us how to pray. He's the rabbi. He's the teacher. Jesus, show us how you do it. Because Jesus was often found, right, by himself in prayer. So how did Jesus pray? Another maybe not embarrassing high school story, is there was a fad going around when I was probably early high school 
was called the WWJD movement. Do any of you remember this? Sheldon remembered. Nobody else does. Okay, I needed some hands. Okay. Otherwise, this is just going to fall flat on you if you didn't were a part of it. So, so WWJD was this sort of like weird phenomenon in Christian culture. For those of you who don't know about it, it's okay. But it was this phenomenon that went on in Christian culture kind of in the early to, to late 90s. Um, and it was all about these bracelets, right? And I'm wearing one today. Sheldon's got his on. We just want to represent, represent Christian culture in the early 90s. So, so the, the idea behind these bracelets is very, very simple. Right? They're, they were intended to be sort of this visible reminder to us to ask this, the question of, what would Jesus do? It's a good, pretty good question, don't you think? Right? I'm in this situation. I don't know how I am to react. I've, I'm a follower of Jesus, so what would Jesus do? Now, it became something so much weirder and greater than, and bigger, I won't say greater, bigger than that. It became books and movies and songs and Bible, WWJD Bibles. I mean, the Bible is WWJD, so I don't know. It's sort of redundant to add anything else on top of it. But this huge thing, and and I have to admit, as a teen, I wore a black WWJD bracelet. That's why I chose black to wear today. So much so (laughs) that... I was working in a kitchen, and it got so dirty, they told me I had to cut it off in order to work around food. But it's a good question for us to ask. And I I was reminded as as I went through and as as I've been going through the Sermon on the Mount that that really what the Sermon on the Mount is, is partially about is an answer to this question of what would Jesus do? Now, probably a more accurate moniker would not be what would Jesus do because Jesus sometimes turned over tables. Jesus lived in the first century AD. He wouldn't drive a car because he didn't have a car. The question is more, if Jesus were living my life, how would he live it? That doesn't fit on the bracelet, by the way. That's too many letters. If Jesus were living my life, how would he do it? If Jesus were in my shoes, how would Jesus pray? Fortunately for us, providentially for us, Jesus seeks to answer that question because prayer is of the utmost importance for the life of those who follow after Christ. Again, he assumes this is going on in the life of those who follow him, who are righteous, who are following Yahweh God. He assumes we're praying, and so what he wants to do is direct us to pray in in such ways as to, to put it crassly, be heard but to pray in the manner and in the form that Jesus himself prays because prayer is vital communication between us and God. Prayer is the primary way in which we make our request known to God. Prayer is that thing that makes this a relationship. And so Jesus wants to teach us about this relationship by teaching us how to pray in the context of this relationship. Two wonderful things that Jesus says in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He says, your father hears you. That's wonderful news, right? Think about it. If we had to sort of yell and whoop and holler to get God's attention, it would be tiring. It would be loud. But what Jesus is saying is, guess what? You don't need to, to vie for God's attention. You have God's attention. 
God sees what is done in secret. You don't have to be loud. In fact, God cares so deeply and intimately for you and for what concerns you, he says, that he knows before you even ask what it is that you need. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Let's put that in a little bit of context. God, sovereign over the universe, creator of all that is, seen and unseen. One would think that perhaps I'd have to get in line to get that God's attention. One might think that why would that God regard me? I'm not a ruler. I don't run a country. I'm just some guy who preached at a church in Longview, Washington. I am not that special in the grand scheme of things. Why would that God regard me? But what Jesus is saying is, guess what? No matter where you are on the socioeconomic spectrum, no matter where you are in rank in your society, God sees you, God hears you, and God cares enough to know what you need before you even ask. In fact, God cares so much about what you need that though God knows what you need before you ask, God still wants to hear it. That's pretty mind-blowing, don't you think? I know what you're going to say, but I really want to hear you say it because I love you and want to hear your voice. That's what's going on. God values God's relationship with you, with me, with us so deeply that even if God knows everything we're going to say, God still wants to hear us say it. That's a pretty intimate and close relationship. That's someone who loves us very much. So even before Jesus teaches us how to pray, Jesus is teaching us about God. About this kind of God to whom we pray. But as Jesus begins to instruct his disciples, he says, this is how you ought to pray. Or in this manner pray. It's important to note here. The words are good and the words are important of the Lord's Prayer. But I don't think what Jesus is going after is saying, every time you pray, pray these words. Now, I think it's good for us to occasionally pray these words together. Common language unites us. But what Jesus is saying is more than just giving us a rote prayer to pray, right? That would be repetition. That would be magic. As if somehow those specific words have power to to do something. They, They don't, really. Jesus says, in this manner, regard yourself to God. So he's giving us a framework a way of understanding our relationship to God and showing us how we might approach this God who saves, redeems, and listens to our prayers and desires to hear from us. And so today we'll talk about what would Jesus pray. So Jesus begins by saying, again, this is how you should pray. And and, and starting off from the beginning, Jesus is talking revolutionary stuff. He says, our Father who is in heaven... Right? We know those words very, very deeply, very intimately. If you've been around the church for any amount of time, you have heard the Lord's Prayer prayed. You have prayed it. Probably one of the first things you memorized. I have trouble sometimes reading this particular translation because that's not how I memorized it. Anyone else? It's familiar to us, but, but Jesus begins by saying, our father, and, and it's not just like our stately father sitting in his study somewhere that we have to sort of trepidatiously enter into the presence. The word used there is Abba, right? You, you may have heard this before, daddy. Our daddy who is in heaven. It's an intimate word. 
It's a word that connotes a closeness, a friendliness, a love, a depth of love. A child regarded themselves to the father who loves them deeply. Some of us have problematic relationships with our own fathers. The idea of daddy may not be helpful. But Jesus isn't seeking to say, hey, your your own fathers are nice, so God's kind of like that. What Jesus is saying is we regard ourselves to this heavenly father, this, this God, this daddy, this one who loves us and embraces us deeply and intimately. This is how fathers ought to be. And this is the God whom you approach. Whom you approach, yes, as sovereign, but also as daddy. Who is in heaven. Heaven is not like this location elsewhere, but this idea of heavens in the ancient world, in the, in the first century, especially within Judaism, is, is the place where God's effective rule is manifest. Right? You have, you have the heavens and you have the earth, and sometimes they touch and overlap in little ways. But the heavens is where God's rule is absolute and manifest, and the earth is just catching up. That's an easier, simple way to think about it. Right? Our Father who is in the heavens, our Father who is sovereign, our Father whose will is done, our Father who is in heaven. And our, our translation says, make your name holy. You, you probably memorized it if you did. Hallowed be thy name. Right? It, these are requests in the beginning of, of things that the prayer is asking of God. God, make your name holy. Again, make your name special. Make your name mean something in this world. The whole idea of profaning the Lord's name is not just saying, oh my God, at some particular point. The idea in the Ten Commandments about profaning the name of God is using God's name for common and unholy purposes. Right? So if I were an advertiser and I said, Bertolini chairs are God's chairs, that is profaning the name of God. Bertolini chairs are comfortable, they're nice, they're great for churches. But are they God's chairs? Right? That, that would be to profane the name of God. That, that would be to take what is holy and righteous and good and powerful and sovereign over the universe and, and apply it to something common, to selling a product. God's name, by the way, is not a product. Nor should it ever be. Right? So, so, so what, what, what we're taught to pray is, God, make your name holy. Set it apart. Show yourself for who you are, holy, righteous, sovereign. Right? You don't take what is holy and use it for common purposes. Some of you grew up with special guest bath towels. You don't use special guest bath towels for common purposes. It's this same kind of thing, just in quality, bigger and better and greater and grander. You don't take what is holy, God's name, God's person, and use it for common things. For things that have nothing to do with God. For things that push forward our purposes rather than God's. God's name should be holy and regarded as such so that when the name of God is mentioned, is breathed, we pay attention, we sit up, we sit back in awe and go, this is the sovereign of the universe. Make your name holy, which basically means manifest your will. Let the whole world know that God is holy. Some place in this world, the name of Yahweh or the name of Jesus are used not even just commonly, but used in derisive and in negative ways that, that because of the ways in which the people of God have acted, right? The name of God is spoken not with love, not with reverence, but with disdain. 
What the psalmist is praying is, God, we don't want that. What Jesus is asking us to pray is, God, make your name holy again so that it is spoken with reverence and awe and love because that is who God is, holy and righteous. Make your name holy. And then Jesus says, pray that that God's kingdom would come and that God's will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Again, without going into too much stuff about the the mind of the first century person, the idea is that, again, there is earth, which is God's creation, which God has made, but but there's also the heavens, which is sort of this realm of which God is sovereign and God is control, and it's sort of these are mirror versions of one another. Heavens is how it should be, and the earth is how it is. Right? So, So in the book of Revelation, what we have is heaven coming to earth. Right? These two things that were once separate becoming one. The place of the dwelling of humanity now becoming the dwelling of our Lord and of his Christ. Right? To pray for the kingdom come is essentially to say, God, your ultimate will for history is that. The world would be the kingdom. The mountain of the Lord's house would be lifted above all nations, as Isaiah says. Right? These kind of visions of future Ezekiel and the river that, that, that gives life to everything it touches, right? All these things are visions that the Old Testament prophets and, and the New Testament prophets saw about, about earth and heaven becoming one, about God making God's own will manifest fully and completely on earth. And so, as Jesus has taught us to pray, he teaches us to pray that God's will would be full and finally manifest on earth as it already is in heaven. You might say in heaven what God says goes or what God wills happens. Maybe is a better way to put it. On earth, we still have the ability to say no to God's perfect will. God might say, Mike, I want this out of your life. I have the power to say no to that. Not good for me, not good for anyone, but I have that power. So that Jesus teaches us to pray that God's will would be done here as it is here. Or, perhaps in the words of one of our songs, that earth and heaven would be one. Right? That, that the kingdom of peace would come on earth as it is in heaven. That, that the people of God would be who we are called to be on earth as we have been declared in heaven. That God's will would be made known and manifest. The good news about this and what Jesus will consistently teach throughout his ministry and, and will go on into the New Testament, right? And in the writers who, who write to the different churches and, and even Revelation is this idea that Jesus is the linchpin of that happening. Again, without going too much into it, I could draw a diagram, but I won't. You have the old age of this world where God's will is not fully manifest. You have the new age where earth and heaven are one. We are living in a time in Christ where those two things touch. If this were a Venn diagram, this would be where they overlap. What we pray is that God's kingdom would come so that the Venn diagram, the circles are on top of each other. God's will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. That God would bring the fullness of God's own kingdom, inaugurated in Jesus Christ, to bear. Now, we have very little power to affect that, but God does. We have very little power to affect God's kingdom united with this earth. But God has that power. 
But when we pray that, we are also praying that we would be aligned to God's kingdom. We may not be fully living in those two things overlapping one another. God's will may not be fully and finally manifest here on this earth. But guess who can live according to God's will as if it were true manifest on this earth? Me, you, the church, the people of God. So not only is it saying, God, do this, but God, we intend to live in this way. Because we believe the kingdom is coming and, as Jesus says, is also now here. We intend to live that way and manifest as much as we are able God's kingdom on earth as we, the church, unite and gather together in response and in obedience to the God who calls us. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. My own personal note on that is it also presupposes that this will be a reality someday. As a Christian growing up, I often lived with the understanding that, that at some point when I died or when Jesus come back, came back, everyone would of course be whisked away to somewhere else. But the overwhelming witness of Scripture is not that the church will be whisked away to somewhere else, but rather the vision of Revelation 20 where heaven comes to earth. I saw the new Jerusalem come like a bride adorned for her husband. And it came, comes to the earth, right? Bodily resurrection. The king not taking us somewhere else, but the king returning and us joining him in his kingdom. It is a note of hope. Not only that God would bring God's kingdom, but the faith that God will bring God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And the intention of ourselves aligning with that kingdom now rather than later. Right? We know every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, right? But the church does it now. We seek to manifest God's kingdom in obedience to the king here and now. So what does this tell us about God? Tells us some pretty awesome things about God, doesn't it? That God cares, that God sees, that God knows our needs. That God, despite what we sometimes think or see in our world, is still sovereign. Our God, who is in heaven, make your name holy. We look at at the war in, in Ukraine and we go, is God really sovereign? For it seems like the guy surrounding Kiev is sovereign. But as the church, we pray something different. God is sovereign. God sees. God knows. God is working towards God's own ends. We see that God is loving. He is our Abba, our Daddy, our loving parent. We see that God answers the prayers of God's people as well. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It presupposes that God will do this in the end, that God has the power to do this, that God is sovereign in God's own love. So we pray those kind of prayers in, as we respond to God, as we, as we talked about God, about things that are beyond our control. That God would do all of this because we have very little power to affect them. But we know that God is not just concerned with sort of cosmic events. Right? God's name being holy in the universe is awesome, but it's pretty cosmic, right? 
It's not very local in scope. It, it, it seems huge and broad and beyond us. God bringing God's kingdom, right? We can have a part, but goodness, we know that that doesn't work real well when we try on our own power. And so we turn from asking God to do things that, that are on the cosmic scale to, to asking God even to care for the intimate details of our lives. Give us this day our daily bread, Jesus teaches us to ask. Or as our text today in the version we read, it says, give us the bread we need to survive for today. There's something in that particular prayer that, well, there's lots in that. I mean, I could preach sermons probably on each of these lines, but, but there's two things going on there. First, from where does our help come? Where does our food come from? Where do our needs become met? Well, you know, we have jobs and we have money, but ultimately all good and perfect things come from the Father of lights. It's an acknowledgement of where our very sustenance comes from. Our spiritual bread, right? That which keeps us alive spiritually, but also I don't think physical bread is out of the question here, especially for a person listening in the first century. Physical bread was an issue. And so it teaches us to be humble and receptive towards God, recognizing that that everything that keeps us alive comes from the hand of God, who loves us, who is our daddy. Give us today the bread we need for today. That which keeps us alive, that which sustains us, that which keeps us going. For some, it's the next meal. No doubt. For some, it's the hope to get out of bed tomorrow. The hope to say things could be better in the future. Right? The evil one seeks to sell us things won't get better. You won't have what you need. You won't, you won't have energy. You won't have strength. All that stuff. The prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray says that God will give us the strength we need for each new day and the sustenance for each new day. It is receptivity to the divine care of Abba Father. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Or forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's an interesting thing here in this prayer that is almost completely God do this, do this, do this. That there is human agency here. The rest of the prayer sort of says there's not really much human agency going on, right? We need, we need God's care even for the bread that we have today, even for our next meal. We need God's care. We need God's providence. We need God to keep us going, to sustain us, to give us bread for the day. But this one is asking for forgiveness, but acknowledging that we are forgiven only in as much we are willing to forgive. Jesus doubles down on this at the end of the prayer after he, we say amen. Jesus says, guess what happens if you don't forgive others? Well, God won't forgive you. There are very few things in scripture about God's love that are contingent. And this, at least here, seems to be one of them. So, so what is Jesus saying? I think Jesus is reminding us that the people of God take on the character of God. That in order to, in any way, understand the salvation we have been given is being willing to extend similar grace to others. 
we are forgiven only in as much as we are willing to forgive. Because if we are unwilling to forgive, then we apparently don't really understand what God has done for us in any sort of way. Right? Paul goes to great lengths to remind us, right, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Right? This is how God demonstrates God's love. This is the centerpiece for Paul and for Jesus of what it means for God to demonstrate love. And if we, as God's people, are to take on that character, to act in obedience to that character, it is for us to give similar grace to others. I don't think Jesus pretends it's easy. It's not always easy to forgive. But Jesus says... If we are to really receive the grace that God gives, we must be willing to give grace to others. For no one has offended us in ways that are greater than the ways humanity has offended God. We killed God, right? That's what we believe about Jesus. We, we have to be complicit in that, killed God. God has forgiven us. In fact, God somehow made the cross the very demonstration of God's love. And so Jesus tells us to pray, God, forgive us inasmuch as we are willing to forgive others. It's a desperate plea, at least in my case, for God's grace and power to forgive in the ways that I have been forgiven. How this works, I don't think it's transactional, but... There's something here that Jesus is saying. If we would receive the grace of God, we must be willing to pass it on. This might be for moral issues, moral sins. This might also be literally, for some translations, the word is debt, which has moral but also physical implications. One of the things Jesus told ancient Israel to do is every so often, you are to forgive and release all debts doesn't matter who owes you what or how much. At this particular time in history, every 40, 50, excuse me, 49 years on the 50th year, everything's to be released. Slaves go free. Someone has sold land to you, give it back. Releasing of debt. It's called jubilee. This, by the way, is what Jesus might have been referring to at Nazareth when he says, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Debts are released. So it is, it is okay and I think appropriate for us to not only see that as sin, right? When someone sins against us, we forgive them as we have been forgiven. But also perhaps if we are owners of debt, that we forgive that debt in others or for others. Just as we would hope that someone would forgive our debts. Now there's lots of stuff in scripture about this. And it's radical Right? In this society where capitalism rules, where the dollar is king. But Jesus begins to help us think in different ways. Of brother and sister ways. Right? No better way to break up a family than to lend money. Jesus asks us to think even economically in different ways. At the very least, to release and to forgive as we have been forgiven. This is one of the ways in which we shine our light before all people. Because this is not the way we are taught to act in the world around us. Tit for tat, right? Bomb for bomb. Bullet for bullet. 
nuke for nuke. Mutually assured destruction is premised on that fact, that if someone shoots at us, we'll shoot back. But Jesus says, let's regard sin in a different way. Sin not as opportunity for retaliation, which we've talked about, but sin as opportunity for extending grace. Lots of implications beyond the scope of today. Forgive us as we have been forgiven. Forgive us as we are able to extend forgiveness as well. And then sort of the last clause, Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus knows and recognizes how easy it is to not live in this way. Jesus knows how easy it is to be led out of this way of living. Jesus has just come, if you'll recall, several, several weeks ago. That really the last major event in Jesus' life prior to this was his temptation in the wilderness. Jesus was tempted. He was tempted to provide his own bread for the day. Take these stones and make them loaves of bread. Rather than relying on God to do that, Jesus says no. Jesus was tempted in ways that, that, that the evil one said, hey, jump off this tall, tall tower and, and surely God will protect you. If God is really there, God will protect you. And Jesus says, no, faith doesn't put God to the test. And lastly, the evil one says, guess what? You're the king of kings, right? If you want the power, I can give it to you. Satan says, I will give you all the kingdoms if you just bow down to me to obtain power in ways that are not godly. That's what Jesus is tempted to do, to achieve God's ends by unethical means. And Jesus says, no, we will Love the Lord your God and serve him only. And we know that that Satan departs for a more opportune time, which I would say is on the road to the cross where Jesus says, not my will but thine. That Jesus might attain what God wants without the hard reality sometimes of what it means to follow. Jesus asks us that God would spare us from those temptations. Jesus, having been through them, we know that it is possible. We ask God that God would deliver us not only from the temptation, but from the hands of the evil, that we would not be led astray in such ways that we would ultimately abandon our first love, the God who has called us, created us, redeemed us, given us life. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the hands of the evil one, just as Christ was delivered from the hands of the evil one by his fidelity by his obedience. Deliver us from the evil one. Now some of you in some versions say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Just a note on textual criticism. That's not in the earliest manuscripts of the Lord's Prayer. It's good tag though. Because it summarizes, for yours is the kingdom, make your name holy, your kingdom come, your will be done. Yours is the power. You have the power to affect these things in us, in our world, and in our lives. And glory. There it is. God is worthy to be worshipped and magnified. Both now and forever. The one who's eternal. Amen.
And Jesus ends by reiterating the forgiveness stuff, which means it's probably important. Okay? Again, I won't preach the sermon again, but I think forgiveness is important in the life of the Christian. If Jesus not only says, this is how you should pray, but then comes back and says, this is why I said that. (laughs) Jesus doesn't do that very often. Must be important. But the good news here is, unlike some things it seems in our life, we don't have to find our own way in prayer. We don't have to muddle around until we hope we get it right. We don't even have to trial and error. Scientific method is wonderful, but we don't have to apply it to the life of prayer because Jesus told us how to pray. Jesus, the only Son of God, the one who we view as the perfect one in communion with God, has taught us how he prays. So we don't have to be in ignorance if we be willing to follow in similar manner. Again, not magic. It's not about the words used. It's about the disposition of the heart, the willingness to love, to forgive, to magnify God's name, to to trust in God for all things that God gives. The good news is, Jesus teaches us how to pray, and there is no better teacher on how to be Christ-like than Jesus. I know that shouldn't come as a shock to us, but Jesus shows us the manner in which we to approach God, the God who sees and knows what we ask before we ask it, but who wants to hear nonetheless. A God who offers us such great forgiveness in Christ and who enables us, yes, by the power of the Holy Spirit and probably only by the power of the Holy Spirit to forgive others in similar ways. The God who provides even our daily bread, who sees even the smallest bird fall to the ground and yet knows us as well. We can draw near to God in confidence, knowing and believing that we will be heard because Jesus says, this is how to do it. This is how to approach. Your God wants to hear you. God wants to know. God wants to hear what you have to say. As the worship team comes back up, there's a wonderful line in one of my favorite hymns that we don't sing often enough because not enough of us know it, but the refrain of that particular hymn is, with confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh, and Father, Abba, Father, cry. Think about it again. This is God, creator of the universe. It is right and good that we should approach with fear and trembling. But Jesus teaches us something. That we need not look at God as if God is waiting to strike us down at the mere, merest and smallest of problems. <clears throat> but rather, that this God, creator of the universe, whose name is holy, who effects the coming of the kingdom, asks us to approach with confidence, with the confidence of a beloved child in the arms of their father. With confidence, we can draw near today. And so I would encourage us, as the worship team is singing the final song, to think about how and to think about approaching God today. In the manner of the Lord's Prayer, approaching Abba Father with confidence, knowing, believing that you are loved, that you are heard, that you are seen. Believing 
that when we ask for our daily bread, God who loves will supply it. Let us approach boldly and joyfully this morning, pouring ourselves out to the God who has called us, asking that God would align us with God's own will, that God would give us the spirit to do God's will, that we might be a part of God bringing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven.